0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID doc. I am super pumped to bring you another international episode today. We are joined by a team from Australia. First up, I'll introduce our host, Dr. Genevieve Martin. She is undertaking her training and ID at the Royal Darwin Hospital in the Northern Territory, Australia. She completed her PhD in the immunology of early HIV infection and HIV cure approaches at the University of Oxford in
1: 2018. Hi, my name is Genevieve Martin. I'm an infectious diseases registrar at the Royal Darwin Hospital, and I'm really glad to be here today.
0: We have two additional consultants today. Dr. Catherine Marshall is the co-director of the Department of Infectious Diseases and is an ID physician at Royal Darwin Hospital.
2: I'm Dr. Catherine Marshall, the co-director of infectious diseases at Royal Darwin Hospital and I'm thrilled to be here, thanks.
0: And we are also joined by Professor Bart Curry, who is an ID physician at Royal Darwin and also works in the Menzies School of Health Research. Good morning or
3: good evening. I'm Bart Curry, an infectious disease physician here at Royal Darwin Hospital and also working at the Menzies School of Health Research.
0: Thank you. Great. I'm so excited you guys are here. Before we jump in, we always ask one quick question. As everyone's favorite culture podcast, I'd love to hear you share a little piece of culture, you know, something that brings you joy outside of work.
1: It's early days to call it something good, but I've just started reading The Beasting by Paul Murray, and I think it's going to be good.
2: So one of my favourite things to do in Darwin each year is to visit the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards that are shown at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory and there's a fabulous array of art from all over the country. Oh it's great,
1: I went a couple of weeks ago.
3: My naturalist colleagues here up in the tropical north of Australia have told me that the snakes have been very unusual in their behaviour over the last three or four months. They've been on the move and They've also been, the newborns have been hatching or the eggs have been hatching and the live have been coming, coming out earlier than normal. We've had a substantial number of bites from snakes in the last few months, more than I think we've ever seen. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> in addition to being a diseases physician, Bart Curry is also our snake bite management expert up here.
3: <laughs> I guess it is mixing work, uh, work with pleasure.
0: <laughs> oh, well, thank you guys so much for sharing. Jennifer, well, I'm looking forward to hearing about your consult.
3: Okay perfect.
1: This scenario is you receive a call in late January, the wet season, from the emergency department that a 42 year old male has arrived having been flown in from a remote community in the Northern Territory. The patient's being brought into his local clinic by family members. History reveals two to three days of cough and subjective fevers. The observations taken in the remote clinic showed a fever of 38.9 degrees celsius, tachycardia at 108 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 109 on 62, and a respiratory rate of 28, meeting Sir's criteria. One set of blood cultures was taken and the patient was given a STAT dose of keftriaxone and gentamicin, along with crystalloid fluid resuscitation. Having now arrived in the ED, he remains tachypneic and tachycardic with a GCS of 14, scored for confusion. He's now requiring two liters of oxygen to maintain oxygen saturations greater than 94%. Initial blood work is taken and is pending, At this point, what further information would you like and what investigations would you suggest that the emergency department request?
2: Thanks, Genevieve. So I guess I I would be concerned that this patient has bacterial sepsis due to a lower respiratory tract infection and I would want to know what their comorbidities were and whether they were a smoker or a heavy drinker of alcohol. We know that excessive alcohol consumption is a risk factor for both meliodosis and community-acquired acinetobacter infection. I'd also want to know whether they've had any water or animal exposures that would put them at risk of infections such as leptospirosis or Q fever. And I'd want to know whether they had any recent skin infections or abscesses that may indicate a risk for disseminated staph aureus infection. I'd recommend that the emergency department undertook further blood cultures, sputum and urine cultures and a chest x-ray in the first instance. In our emergency department, they would also do a gene expert PCR for, for COVID-19, influenza and RSV. I'd also suggest sending serology for myliodosis. and we also do a, or recommend a throat and rectal swab that is then incubated in a selective media called Ashdown Media, looking specifically for miliodosis. Given the confusion in this patient, I think that they're going to likely need imaging of the brain with at least a CT scan and probably a lumbar puncture to exclude a meningoencephalitis after they're stable from a, an initial resuscitation perspective. And I guess all, although less likely, uh, I may also suggest sending a, a blood and urine for, say, leptosporosis, PCR and, and serology.
1: Okay. Well, we have some of that information. So in terms of past medical history, the emergency department staff have been unable to identify any relevant past medical history and they've confirmed that the, the patient does, has very little contact with his local clinic. With regards to alcohol use, they've spoken with family, who've reported that he does not drink any alcohol and is not a smoker, but that he does spend a lot of time fishing in the rivers around the community. Initial blood work is now back, which shows a raised white cell count at 23.2 with a predominant neutrophilia and a C-reactive protein at 391 milligrams per liter. His creatinine is elevated at 156, giving a GFR of 46 with a lactate of 3.2, ketones 2.4 and sodium 129. He has a normal bilirubin of 7 with liver enzyme derangement that's predominantly cholestatic. The patient's noted to have a macrocytic anemia with a haemoglobin of 110 and an MCV of 105. Chest X-ray shows bilateral consolidation and neuroimaging is still pending. Despite a further two litres of fluid resuscitation, he remains hypotensive and is being transferred to the intensive care unit for vasopressor support. At this stage, what empiric antimicrobials would you suggest and why?
2: So I would initially recommend uh, treatment for severe community-acquired pneumonia, which according to our local guidelines in the wet season, would include a combination of meropenem that covers the usual well-known organisms um, that cause community-acquired pneumonia, such as streptococcal pneumoniae, but will also cover Vercalderia pseudomallei, the agent causing melioidosis, and community-acquired Acinetobacter baumannii, which also can be a cause of community-acquired pneumonia in our tropical region. And that would also provide cover for leptospirosis. I'd also recommend vancomycin to cover for MRSA, and azithromycin to provide some atypical cover, particularly thinking of Legionella.
1: Okay, thank you for that.
2: So the patient's
1: been admitted to the intensive care unit, and on your advice, has been commenced on meropenem, vancomycin, and azithromycin, but has an ongoing noradrenaline requirement. He's requiring oxygen via nasal prongs, but no additional respiratory supports, and has been commenced on an insulin infusion to assist in management of hypoglycemia and ketosis. An HbA1c has just returned at 10.2%, consistent with undiagnosed diabetes mellitus. The intensive care team have received a phone call to say that a blood culture taken in community is growing an atypical motile gram-negative bacillus, which they suspect may be a contaminant. The two further sets taken in the emergency department remain negative at this stage. Based on this information, Burkholderia pseudomallei is strongly suspected to be the causative organism. I'm wondering Bart if you could tell us a little bit more about the additional diagnostic tests that might be available at this stage to help us confirm the diagnosis.
3: Yes, thanks Genevieve. So meleodosis is always diagnosed still by having a culture. That's the only thing that will fulfill the definition of confirmed melioidosis is a laboratory culture for Burkholder-issued The organism was thought by the laboratory initially, not our hospital laboratory, but the external laboratory to maybe be a contaminant, which is not unusual for places where they may not see this organism so commonly. So the thing about the organism is that it's a motile gram-negative rod, it's oxidase positive, non-lactose fermenting, and it has bipolar staining. In laboratories which do not have a lot of resources, there's a 3 diffusion test that can be used, which is Using gentamicin to which Burkholderia is resistant, and also colistin disc, and also an amoxicillin clavulanic acid disc, and, and Burkholderia malayi is sensitive to amoxiclav, but resistant to gentamicin. So that three disc test has been very useful to make people think that this is B. Then to confirm that the organism is B. there have traditionally been various biochemical profiles, but there are also automated tests uh, such as Bitec and Malditoff. The problem with Phytek and Malditoff, and there have been a number of publications over the years, is that historically they would sometimes misidentify B. mallei as another Burkholderia species or indeed some other organisms. But more recently, with improved database profiles, such as an increased number of mass spectra profiles in the Malditoff, the specificity of these automated detection systems have been much improved, so that the final confirmation can be made on those systems usually. However, in addition to that, there is also the ability to do a PCR on a culture, and also there is a non-commercial lateral flow assay that can be used.
1: Okay, fantastic, that's really helpful. So to return briefly to the case, based on some advice provided by our team, some further investigations are performed. A CT of the chest, and abdomen and pelvis is performed, revealing a dense right-sided consolidation and left middle zone changes without any cavitation or associated pleural effusion. There is evidence of multiple splenic hypodensities reported to favour infection or infarction. This CT has also identified a very large 24 by 18 millimetre prostatic abscess. Urology have been referred to consider drainage of this. And the urine sent on admission has greater than 100 leukocytes on microscopy and is now growing a motile gram-negative organism with bipolar staining, which the lab has confirmed is morphologically consistent with Burkholderia pseudomallei and a PCR of a throat rectal swab cultured in Ashdown's media, is also positive for this organism. Together, these investigations confirm a diagnosis of milioidosis. What is your approach to the initial management of
2: this infection? Thanks, Genevieve. So I think we'd be comfortable now that this patient, as you mentioned, has disseminated milioidosis with involvement with pneumonia, a likely splenic abscesses and a prostatic abscess. So our initial management would include appropriate antimicrobial therapy, which would be intravenous in the first instance with either meropenem or chazidine. And we usually prefer meropenem in the intensive care setting. Given that there's deep abscesses, particularly in the prostate, we would also add a second agent, so Cotramoxazole, as you know, additional agent to improve penetration, particularly within the prostate. The other critical component of initial management is source control. So in this case, we would recommend um, drainage of the prostatic abscess, which might be done either by the urologists or is sometimes done by our radiology colleagues transrectally using ultrasound guidance. There would also need to be assessment of the, the splenic abscess about whether that would need further drainage, but often we can manage those conservatively with antibiotics alone.
1: On day four of ICU admission...
2: The patient being weaned off inotropic support
1: with improving inflammatory markers. A traumatic swelling of the left knee is noted and a diagnostic aspirate performed at the bedside reveals a synovial white cell count of 38,000 cells with no organisms or crystals seen. Burkholderia pseudomallei PCR and a lateral flow assay for the Burkholderia pseudomallei antigen on synovial fluid is positive. How frequently is musculoskeletal involvement encountered and does this change your management?
3: Thanks Genevieve. So. Just taking a step back, this, this patient represents the severe end of the spectrum of melioidosis. So it's a person who has severe sepsis, they're bacteremic, and the organism is primarily probably caused a pneumonia initially and then seeded to prostate, spleen, and now, as evident, to a joint. Overall, over half of the patients who present with melioidosis are bacteremic, and the primary presentation in around half of the patients is a pneumonia with subsequent seeding in some of them. Overall, 21% of the patients do present like this with septic shock requiring intensive care management. Then the lesser end of the spectrum of presentation, which is not this patient, are people who may have a primary skin lesion without systemic sepsis, or people presenting primarily with a genitourinary infection, where the prostate abscess may be the initial presentation rather than having seeded there with pneumonia being the primary presentation. So overall, in answer to the question, septic arthritis is very rare as a primary presentation, around about 3% of our cases, and osteomyelitis, even less common, 1% of our primary cases. But within the three weeks following initial presentation, seeding to bone and joint is certainly well recognised. So an additional 3% of patients will seed to joints, such as in this patient, 3% seed to joint with osteomyelitis, And we also have seeding to muscles, so muscle abscesses in sometimes multiple different muscles will present in 3% of patients subsequent to their initial presentation. So that's the spectrum of amyloidosis, And the way it changes management is, is that, as Catherine mentioned, abscesses often need to be drained, and certainly joints need to be initially, after the aspiration, usually washed out. And it's not uncommon for joints to need to have a second washout. And so What we do is that we reset the clock for the intravenous antibiotics every time we do an aspirate or a washout or a drainage of an abscess, provided that that it is culture positive, which it usually is. So that then resets our clock for the antibiotic duration for the intravenous antibiotics.
1: And I guess that leads into the next question. Once appropriate source control has been achieved, and we're happy that that's the case,
3: the duration
1: of antimicrobials used for melioidosis is much longer than other gram-negative infections. How long do you need to treat for? And what's the approach to this?
2: As alluded by Bart, the the treatment of meliodosis involves an intensive intravenous phase, which is followed then by an oral eradication phase. And the duration of the intensive phase varies depending on the source and extent of the infection. For a simple limited bacteremia or limited mild pneumonia, that may be two weeks of intravenous therapy. But if there is disseminated disease, say, for example, with central nervous system involvement this may be as long as eight weeks and as Bart mentioned before time is taken from either the date of the last positive culture or the time that source control has been achieved with either you know drainage of an abscess. In this case where there are deep collections and septic arthritis the patient would require a minimum of four weeks of intravenous therapy from the time of source control But if it subsequently discovered that they had osteomyelitis associated with their septic arthritis, then that would need to be extended to six weeks. Following the intravenous phase, there is ongoing eradication therapy, which usually involves oral cotrimoxazole for a minimum of three months. That would be extended out to six months if there were CNS involvement or osteomyelitis. If cotrimoxazole is not tolerated, then doxycycline is used as a second line therapy. This patient is improving and nearing
1: discharge from our hospital and the home service, having completed six weeks of intravenous therapy with keftazamine. They've been established on trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole at a high dose of 320 1600 milligrams, orally twice a day, with additional folic acid supplementation. They're tolerating this regimen well with no significant adverse reactions. They ask you why they became sick with this infection in the first place. How do you cancel them about risk factors and prevention of infection?
3: I think that taking a step back in, in relation to prevention of meleidosis, which would also be the information passed on to this patient because people can get a second infection with meleidosis. What we have recognised over time with our studies here in Darwin is that meleidosis is very much considered as an opportunistic infection. So healthy people rarely get very sick from meleidosis And indeed, only 16% of our cases are people who have identified clinical risk factors. So that our emphasis for for public health is on the people who have the risk factors and for them to avoid exposure to the organism during the wet season when 85% of our cases happen. Our wet season here is from uh, basically November through to the end of April. And it's during that time that the majority of our cases happen when people have an exposure to wet season, soil, mud or surface water. What are those risk factors? Well, up to 50% of our cases are people living with diabetes. Sometimes diabetes has not been diagnosed until the episode of meleidosis. Hazardous alcohol use is unfortunately common in our part of the world here as a risk factor for meleidosis. And then people with chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease, and then increasingly we're seeing our patients who have malignancies and particularly after they go on immunosuppression and most notably corticosteroid therapy. They are people who are really magnets for meleidosis during the wet season and so for those people in the high risk groups we actually recommend that when the wind and rains come that they stay indoors during periods of heavy wind and rain because while the majority of infections are thought to be percutaneous exposure through either cuts or uh, trauma there's clearly a shift to inhalational meleidosis when there is actually windy and rainy events and so We recommend people with those risk factors stay indoors and if they have to go outside, they even wear a mask. One of the things we've found most recently in the last few years is that people using high pressure hoses to clean off pavements or to clean their cars have been getting infected through aerosolisation. So these are all the things that, that can put people at risk of meleidosis. And the final point is that children are not at risk usually of getting meleidosis We, of course, will have the occasional case with a single skin sore or an immunosuppressed child, unfortunately, may well get malleidosis and become sick. But overall, less than 4% of our patients are children aged under 15 years.
1: I guess we've talked a little bit about malleoid up here in the top end. Burkholderia pseudomelia is found in the soil in tropical and subtropical regions, including the top end of Australia where we work. In endemic areas, the incidence of melioidosis, as you've mentioned, has a strong link with weather events. What do we know about the environmental niche of Burkholderia pseudomallei, and is this linked to a change in regions of endemicity?
3: That's a fascinating area, and there's a lot of our colleagues around the world, and including in the Americas, working on this issue of what is, or what are the environmental niches for Burkholderia pseudomallei. We know that it's been endemic for a long period of time in much of the tropics and subtropics. And it's only been when people have brought laboratory resources to regions, such as in parts of Africa, and indeed in in South America and the Caribbean, that people have started to diagnose cases of malaria The organism is natural to many of these tropical environments, and it it has a a selective advantage over other environmental organisms, in particularly soils which are nutrient-deplete, so poor soils with lower pH. Where the organism is able to survive and outcompete other organisms. Its actual role in the environment is hypothesized to be in symbiosis with the rhizosphere of various plants or the root systems, where this organism, Burkatochitimalee, is able, through its vast array of virulence factors, to provide a biodefense for those plants against invading bacteria, fungi, and protozoa. The issue for the Americas is fascinating because while Meliodosis has been endemic for a long time in many parts of the world. In the United States, it is now being found for the first time to be actually endemic in the Gulf state of Mississippi. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine just last year, following three cases in the years between 2020 and 2023 from a particular county on the Gulf coast of Mississippi. So this is an emerging issue, and our colleagues at CDC in the US are working hard with the state health authorities in Mississippi to find out how it got there and how widespread it might be. Is it in other Gulf states in in the United States? What the genotyping has shown of those bacteria is that they are a Western Hemisphere strain. So it has potentially moved from the Americas through the Caribbean and then uh, from Southern America and Caribbean into the Southern United States. Our colleagues at the CDC are experts at advising people on that and they have resources available for both diagnosis and advice on therapy as well if there should be an emerging case somewhere. And remember that also that of those 12 cases, the majority have been imported cases through various products brought into the US or returned travellers. There was a case in 2019 related to an aquarium that had fish which were imported from Southeast Asia. The Aquarium was positive for Burkutu or the water was, and that linked, uh, was identical on genotyping to the isolate from the patient. You might be aware that there was the tragedy of the four cases in the US, which was uh, from imported aromatherapy spray from India, four cases, two fatal, and one of those fatalities was in a child who was co-infected with COVID. That was in four different states, and it was an aromatherapy product imported, which was contaminated with B. Shidamala. And again, the genotyping Linked the isots from the patients to that aromatherapy spray. So, these are the sort of scenarios. So, imported cases certainly happen. Return travelers have Melioid, and now you have it endemic in the US. So, watch this space.
1: Okay, fantastic. I feel like I'm always learning so much listening to you talk about Melioid. Before we wrap up, are there any other pearls of wisdom you have to share with the audience about Melioid?
3: I guess that there's a number of things of interest and important. One is our lack of understanding still of how quickly it is spreading around the world. And so in other words, the unmasking of long-term endemicity versus uh, spread, such as I mentioned into the Southern United States. And then what will happen over the next few decades, there is modeling suggesting that with global warming, the organism will continue to proliferate potentially more rapidly and in a more diverse geographic range because of the nature of the weather that we're facing and the climate future that we're facing in the world. The other thing is, is that as an opportunistic pathogen, which particularly is an issue for people living with diabetes, the incredible increase in diabetes worldwide, particularly in lower income countries and such as in Southeast Asia, parts of Southeast Asia and in, in the Americas as well, and also in Africa, it means that there's gonna be a, an enormous number of people who are susceptible to getting unwell should they become infected. And I guess the final point is that the positive side of things is that there's actually a vaccine on the horizon and there are three vaccines that are currently in active study. And it's hoped that there will be in the next 12 to 18 months, the first ever in human trial of some of the first of these vaccines for maladosis.
1: Okay, fantastic.
0: Thank you so much to Genevieve, Catherine, and Bart for joining Febrile today. This was a really awesome episode. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you'll find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Febrile is produced with the support of the ID Society of America. Audio editing and mixing is provided by Bentley Brown. Please reach out if you have any questions, suggestions for future shows, or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.